Building anything interesting takes sort of a minimum of five years. If you're vulnerable, it actually makes it easy to ask for help as well. What is the number one quality that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur? Stupid amounts of grit. Now, private equity is many things, but slow moving is not one of them. When I took on the reins as head of talent at Turn River Capital, a P firm in San Francisco with about $3 billion in assets under management, I inherited a world where each ticking second meant an opportunity lost or gained. And one of the first things I did, both for the talent acquisition team internally, as well as each of our portfolio companies, was institute a True North metric of time to hire. It was not just about filling seats, but finding the right talent that fit like a glove in the grand scheme of things. What you soon realize is that for every day a position remains vacant, you're not just losing efficiency metrics for your TA organization, it's a ripple in the business efficacy, echoing across the hallways right to the bottom line. It isn't merely a race against time, it's about precision, engagement, and a dance with data to court the right talent. And in this dance, a partner like RecruitBot and its maestro Jeremy Schiff would have been our knight in shining armor. So let me introduce you to Dr. Jeremy Schiff, the brainchild behind RecruitBot. He's a virtuoso in applied machine learning, and Jeremy's journey is a fusion of academia, entrepreneurship, and a relentless quest to enhance our interactions with technology. From co-founding PhotoFlexer to leading data science at OpenTable, and now pioneering a mission with RecruitBot to redefine recruiting, his story is nothing short of inspiring. And RecruitBot is not just a platform. It's Jeremy's vision to mesh machine learning with recruitment to not just match resumes with job descriptions, but to foster meaningful engagements between organizations and potential talent, making the hiring journey as seamless as possible, especially for your hardest to fill roles. So in today's episode, we're gonna unravel Jeremy's voyage from his early influencers and mentors to the birth of RecruitBot. He'll share his wisdom on the value of collaboration, on navigating the whirlpool of AI hype in HR tech, and the transformative potential of Gen AI in business and recruitment. Get ready to dwell into a discourse that'll transverse the essence of AI in automating recruitment, the power of data in honing hiring processes, and the exciting interlude of Jeremy's venture into the realm of restaurant recommendations. We're going to go from the startup world to big tech landscapes, and we're going to glean insights both from the sweet and the bitter of entrepreneurship, the thrill of bootstrapping, and the resilience that fuels the quest to bring a vision to life. So grab your headphones and let's dive into this enthralling narrative filled with lessons, reflections, and a peek into the future. This is Venture Visionaries, and I'm Thomas Igemet. Let's go. I'm curious if you can trace back to any childhood moments or experiences that hinted to your future entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, it's a great question. So I sort of have the cliche, at least tech version of the story, which is I got really into computers when I was young because it started with I really enjoyed video games and then it became I want to be able to start the video game without talking to my parents when I'm five years old or whatever it is. And then it was like, oh, cool, I could mess with these video games. And then it led to coding and all of those sorts of things. It's always, I think, about been the intersection of two very specific things. I'm a very problem solver sort of oriented person. 
So mm-hmm. I see problems and I'm instantly like, oh, how can we do that better, more efficiently? And that's been true since I've been like a very young kid. I've always just been very sort of process driven and interested in, frankly, helping people and sort of solving mm-hmm. problems. It's also just fun intellectually. But the thing that really resonated with me was the unique scalability of software in its ability to go and impact incredible amounts of people, even with not that many people being involved in the project. My idol growing up was probably like Bill Gates. It was amazing the sort of scope where it was just like, oh yeah, like you have a bunch of engineers that build something and you can, whether you want to distribute that to 10 people or or 5 billion people, it's the same sort of thing. And sort of I saw the direction that software was going and that sort of notion of scalability and its ability to affect people. And that just really excited me. Who are kind of the early influencers in your immediate life or who you saw outline who've shaped kind of not just your thought of what this job is or what this sector is, but the kind of leader you want to be in it? I've never had like a single mentor in the same way that I've never really had like a single click of friends. I've always mm. had like different cohorts of people that I interact with in like incredibly different ways. I mean, there are clear people that have influenced me from there were some pretty amazing people in like my my advisor in college in graduate school mm. uh, had a is uniquely gifted at his ability to make technology accessible. And if you're going to go and build crazy cutting edge technology using machine learning and AI and you can't explain it to your mom or your dad, you're probably not going to get very far. That was a pretty big influence. Honestly, my father has been a profound influence. My dad worked in Microsoft for over 10 years, like sort of leading leading a big consulting practice there, which is probably mm-hmm. intertwined with my sort of interest in Bill Gates back then when yeah. I was a, an impressionable kid. Even today, like I'll run into sort of interesting business challenges and be like, how should I think about things? But more mm-hmm. broadly... I don't really have a single mentor. I have lots of advisors that I'm like, hey, I've got this specific problem. Who do Mm. I go and help with? Right. I've got like, Mm. here's a tech, here's a deep technology problem, or here's a tech organization problem. How do I organize my technology team? Or I've got a marketing problem, or I've got a go to market problem, or I've got a sales market problem, or I've got a virality problem. And depending on whatever sort of market I'm, I'm looking in, there's usually a couple of people who are like world-class experts in sort of one thing or another. Finding other people to sort of join in and everyone helping everyone is a pretty unique mm-hmm. way of, of doing things. And I think it's very core to who I am in terms of even the way as I've talked about how I sort of build friendships, but more broadly, sort of the way I build out a sort of community of, of, of advisors that can help me. It's funny, I've never actually like thought of it in these terms until you've asked. Why do you think you view the world as cooperatively as you do? Do you find that the people around you see the world as cooperatively as you see it? Yeah, it's funny. It it, it reminds me a little bit of a sort of like weird case study that I did a long time ago. I think it was like front page or something back in the day. And there was like this big debate of, are you open about what it is that you're building? Or are you sort of very tight-lipped about the thing that you're building, right? And if you're tight-lipped about the thing of your building, the advantage is that no one can copy your idea. But the disadvantage is you get feedback from no one about whether or not you're actually building the right thing. Probably one out of every 100,000 ideas actually starts out building the right thing. I would argue almost of the most interesting products require quite a lot of iteration and feedback. Mm -hmm. And so I think you learn pretty early that 
A, if you think your idea is unique, you're wrong. There are five other people. Like It's like a funny running joke that some ideas you'll go and talk to a VC about some idea that you think is really interesting. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard that three times this week, right? Like that <laughs> happens all the time. The value is in the insights and the innovation and the sort of rapid understanding and clarifications about the nuance because the ideas matter, but how you operationalize those and then actually have them show up is important. And so yeah. like for me, I think a lot of it just comes from that, which is like I can either be... I literally have a new sort of version of a product that we're iterating on. And I put it in front of a couple of recruiting agencies. And I was like, I have no idea if you guys are going to love this idea or hate this idea or, or how you're going to react. And mm. I got a bunch of like very useful feedback, mainly positive, but some very, very specific things. And without talking to people, you can't really understand. If you're vulnerable, it actually makes it easy to ask for help as well, right? Mm. It's a pretty weird thing to be like, I don't know this thing. I think because I'm a domain expert in a lot of like very specific things like hardcore machine learning or really yeah. large scale systems. I'm very aware about the things that I don't know where I'm not an expert. Mm. And it makes me very aware of where I'm going to need help and where I'm going to need to grow and where I'm going to need to lean on other people because I just don't have the skills or ability. Doesn't mean you can't grow into that direction, but it requires you just sort of eventually accept that like people have very deep domain expertise in things and you can sort of ask for help. And I think it's, I've never, if you do it in the right way, it doesn't feel as transactional as I think the way a lot of people are, right? Like it's mm. in a lot of ways, it's like, I like it when people ask for my help. It's an opportunity for me to feel good about myself and to go in to share a lot of hard work that I've spent going and accruing this knowledge and going and disseminating it to other people, as yeah. opposed to, I guess, the other view, which is like transactionally, where like the ASCII is taking and the asker is giving. And I just don't sort of view the world that way. Given your lens, right, as somebody who has not just studied this at the doctorate level and built that domain expertise, but really been working to build products along this long before it was the hot thing to do, what's your read on today's buzz? At the end of the day, there are different definitions for AI, but the one that I like the most is it's focusing on problems where there's a better or worse answer rather than a right or a wrong answer. So like a good example is like chess, right? There's no right move in chess, but mm. there's definitely better moves and worse moves in chess. Or in the recruiting domain, there's no perfect resume, but there's definitely like these resumes are a lot more relevant to a position you're trying to fill. And these other resumes are a lot less relevant to a position you're trying to fill. Yeah. And so AI is literally any type of program that's trying to address a problem where there's better or worse rather than right or wrong, which is the reason that people can sort of say, oh, we're doing AI. And all AI really means to them is like, we're working on a problem that like involves data. It's almost like what people mean now. And if, if you're in 2023 and you're not using data, I good yeah. luck having a business, right? Frankly, I spent a lot of time sort of going through the distinctions between like the different types of AI, the different approaches, things like that. So a great example is mm. like, the there have been sort of a couple of major waves of sort of AI making a big, big sort of splash. But I'd argue the first wave has actually already come and is still continuing to grow despite all of the chat GPT and, and Anthropic and Bard and all of that sort of mm. uh, new um, generative AI stuff, which is it was a sort of a prior wave of what's typically like uh, to nerd out a little bit. It's called discriminative AI or most machine learning is this way, which is I want to go and predict or rank something based on data that I have. This is the reason Netflix recommending recommendation system is such a big deal and everyone is used to it everywhere. This is how Penn Pandora and Spotify are recommending music. This is the way that the tech that I sold to OpenTable with like a bunch of other amazing people, that technology was focused on how do you recommend the best restaurant based on all of the information that you have about people. 
And the insight of machine learning was rather than sort of using arbitrary heuristics, like let's get back to the to the sort of resume domain, take a similar job title times five plus the same plus a similar education times three. You mm-hmm. can see how silly and naive that is. That's how most of this tech is actually built that they're calling AI. Machine learning, as opposed, is going to say, for example, give me all of your ratings and let me use statistics to find which concepts and which words are going to be most relevant. So, oh, this specific position cares more about about leadership and technology. And the other one, oh, this hiring manager is very focused on pedigree for whatever reason and really cares about Mm. education and schools. And another focuses more on a broad range of job titles. You can see how the system would adapt based on the feedback that you're giving it, right? And the reason, for better or for worse, the reason Facebook's so addictive, I mean, this crazy thing happened where, what, 41 states are going after Facebook effectively for being too addictive. The reason TikTok exists, the the way Amazon can go and recommend products, all of this stuff is built on the back of machine learning, which was sort of, I would argue, it's like a weird way to frame it, but like the first wave of like transformative AI. And we're now starting to see a second wave. But the big distinction is normally with the first wave of technology, you needed and you still need pretty domain specific experts who really understand the math and deep algorithms and all sorts of things like that. With generative AI, it actually was around for like nine months or a year and, and no one cared. And then Mm. what happened was ChatGPT built this sort of like interesting chat interface Mm. and literally anyone could go and sort of leverage AI to do something that really democratized the ability for people to go and sort of have impact and have that explode. There are all sorts of limitations to where it's working and where it isn't working. And obviously, they're going to continue sort of trying to improve on them. One obvious one is like what people call hallucinating, where the ChatGPT technologies will basically invent information that isn't there. There's a famous mm-hmm. one where some lawyer tried to use ChatGPT <laughs> to make its arguments, and it, it made a very compelling argument and used two cases that didn't exist. If you understand how the technology works, that's like totally intuitive that it would go and do something like that. But if mm. you ran it on its face, it seems super reasonable and logical and like, yep, mm. that sounds like exactly what should happen. And so a lot of this is sort of two things happening at once or three things. One, a lot of people are just slapping chat GPT on the product so that they can sort of claim that they can do it for marketing material. Yeah, I'd argue that's probably 90 plus percent of people. Then there's sort of like 5% of people where they're trying to be really thoughtful about where this stuff works and where this stuff breaks down today in order to build products that are really going to be valuable. So like Mm. we've been playing around with a bunch of ChatGPT stuff and other sort of similar technologies inside, but we haven't launched them yet because it's very important that the thing actually works for users in a way that's valuable as opposed to me just sort of like stamping it on top. It'll launch soon enough. But like, again, getting back to the original theme, I really care about solving problems for people. I don't really care about Mm. like saying like, hey, I'm using this cool next to new technology. Like if I can solve it with really rudimentary approaches, I'll do that. And then the third is the companies that are building the ChatGPT, ChatGPTs and Anthropics and Bards of the world, they're trying to work out how to build systems that aren't going to have these sorts of deficiencies and yeah. have additional types of capabilities to take things to sort of the next level. So all of those things are sort of happening at once. So you need skills to work out what's nonsense and what's legitimate. You need to sort of lean into the companies that are building, using these sorts of technologies that are really going to impact the bottom line of your business. The world is going to be very different sort of going forward. It's funny, I actually talk to recruiters a lot in conferences. And like the first thing that I say is, AI isn't going to take your job away. Your job is very secure. But the difference between the people using AI to go and do their jobs more efficiently versus the ones who don't 
is going to be like the people who were doing recruiting before the internet existed and after the internet existed, right? Mm. They'll have such a profound advantage that it's not that recruiters will go away. It's the recruiters who know how to leverage this stuff are going to make a lot more money. And the ones who don't are going to sort of get left behind. And so the hardest part is just staying on top of all of the innovation and all of the changes and all of the approaches that are happening, right? Every two or three months, something new is happening, right? Like ChatGPT just announced that they have tech that can look at an image and sort of like understand what's going on inside of it in all sorts of interesting ways. Like that used to be a very specific, very narrow sort of machine learning problem. And it seems to work in a much more generalized way now, which is pretty amazing. This is the first technology and like a lot of people have wanted a bunch of other technologies to be like the next internet. I think this is the next internet. And I think in the same way it was impossible. No one was going to imagine Uber or Airbnb when you sort of saw the internet in 1990. It's very hard to judge where AI is going to go long term. But I'm seeing even within our own products, high impact today. If somebody is out there trying to decide what technologies to invest in for their organization around AI and struggling to figure out what's buzz, what's real, is there a heuristic of like a key set of questions that like I should be asking to kind of weed through the noise? I think you can probably get through 80% of it with a couple of things. One, Mm. it doesn't matter if they're using AI. It matters if they can solve whatever problem you have in a way that is really valuable to you. If they're like, oh, we have all of this AI and and we have all of this and we're using ChatGPT and blah, blah, blah. You're like, how are you using it? What is it doing? How is it saving me time? How is it making me more money? How is it making me more productive? Whatever sort of ROI metric you care about, put their feet to the fire and actually get them to answer that question. And then the second is, what are you leveraging in your system, usually in terms of data, in order to do what you're doing and sort of give me an intuition about how it works? So we haven't talked at all about RecruitBot yet, but it's my current (laughs) venture, which is a sort of sourcing automation platform. So our goal is to automate the process of reaching out to what are called passive candidates. So people who are generally happy in their job, but are open to a conversation with someone new. This is the way that most hard to fill roles are filled is recruiter or agency is reaching out to you and sort of trying to get you to have a job. We basically make that a lot easier. So the three major steps, finding the right people, engaging with those people, and then optimizing the process. When we find the people, we have actually a database of 600 million. I think it's going to be 640 million in another couple of days, which has all sorts of different types of information. So it is candidate profile data, but it also has things like understanding sort of languages people might know from something like GitHub or have they worked at a series A or series company, series C company, all the sorts of like different ways that you might want to cross reference data when you're trying to look people up. Once you've sort of filtered that down. So let's say I'm trying to, I found 10,000 backend engineers in San Francisco, that's still way too many people. And so we can use machine learning, like true machine learning, like we were talking about to take in all of the feedback that the recruiters are using about who is the good fit and bad fit for the role. And we can automatically prioritize the 10,000 candidates and say, here are the 50 
60 that are most likely to be relevant based on what the machine learning thinks is most consistent about the candidates that are good and then the candidates are bad. Mm. And once you found those people, then you can run, we have validated emails and validated phone numbers, and you can run automated email campaigns to get them to talk to you. And then you have all the analytics to understand open rates and response rates. And Jane's campaign is getting twice the response rates of Bob. So we should mm. use more of Jane's campaign and less of Bob's campaign, all of that sort of stuff. We really solve the problem end to end of finding the right people, getting them to talk to you, and then optimizing the process. So as you continue to recruit, you'll get better and better and better. The reason I'm bringing this up is there's a couple of like very key things that that I can point to about how we're doing something that's using true AI and machine learning, right? So for Mm. example, some of the filters that we use are are DEI specific. So help me find a female salesperson because I don't have the right balance between men and women on my sales org, or Mm. I need someone who's Latinx or African-American or a veteran for some specific sort of domain where that's going to be really impactful. The way you build these systems are either you, you, let's say women, you do something really silly, like you just type in a list of 100 female names and you're like, there you go, like there's your list. Mm. Or you do what we did, which was we took lists of, I think, hundreds of millions of people with gender data. And we built a system to go and predict the likelihood that someone was like, Thomas is going to be very likely a man, Jill, very likely a woman and Taylor actually pretty close to 50-50. You don't need a PhD in machine learning to understand how that's going to work, right? You're just mm. like, okay, you're using this data to generate these patterns to go and understand things or on the when I'm going and prioritizing candidates, same sort of thing. I understand how based on the data that you're providing, how you're going to be able to go adapt. This is very similar to what a recruiter does, right? You sit them down and they say, this is how I think about what a candidate is good. I need you to help me find candidates that are like that. And so we're just doing that using statistics rather than sort of like describing broadly what you're looking for. What are you most excited about? I've worked in a lot of different domains. Frankly, recruiting is a lot more fulfilling than helping people find the next restaurant as much as I enjoyed working on that problem for seven years. Recruiting is really powerful because you're you're doing two sort of wonderful things at once. A, people spend most of their time doing their job. And so if you can get them to do a job that they're happy and fulfilled and excited by, they're just happier people. If you do it right, you're helping humanity solve all of the biggest sort of key problems in the world better, right? Like we're not going to cure cancer without having the right scientists working on the right problems. We're not going to get to Mars without the right engineers working on the right problems. Those require smart people in the right roles working on the right problems. And so reducing the friction of matching the right candidates with the right roles is really impactful. So that's that's always been something that really excites mm. me. And then in terms of timing, I think there's a really interesting sort of yin and yang that's happening with RecruitBot, where because of all of the technology we've been building over the last six years, we have this really robust database, we have the ability to ask questions of all sorts of different types of data that typically would require many different sites, I have the ability to prioritize this data, it's really giving the expert sourcers and expert recruiters a totally different level of control to ask Mm. questions of the data to focus in on just the right people. Mm. But on the flip side, with introductions of some generative AI technology, and I can't go into the details yet, it can make it a lot more accessible for the more junior recruiter or the layman Mm. or something like that as well. And so it's, it's really interesting to me how the same technology is actually sort of pushing two dimensions at exactly the same time. 
Mm. making it easier for people who are novices and making the experts more powerful. We keep talking about how AI is basically going to do neither of those things. It's going to it's going to make the novices not matter and it's going to scale all the way up and take out the experts and no one's going to have a job and we're all going to be beholden to AI. Mm. But the reality is, at least from what we're seeing, sort of the opposite is true is like, if you're an expert sorcerer and you've been doing it for five to 10 years, you want the control, you know exactly how to do what you need to do. And you just want that easier, faster and more effective. And if you're new, you don't want to go and learn all of the crazy Boolean search algebra that like the, the advanced sorcerers use. It lowers the barrier for people to get their feet wet. And then they can go mm. and sort of learn that over time, as opposed to there being sort of like a very high bar to get started. I feel like in general, these sort of generative AI technologies make that easy, right? If you're like, hey, I need to write a blog and I don't know where to start. Be like, ChatGPT, how would you write this article? And you're like, oh, that's like 80%, right? But like, now I have a starting point. Now I can go and tweak it and actually make yeah. it accurate. But I've got my first blog post as opposed yeah. to staring at an empty piece of paper and being like, go and write your first blog post. And you're like, well, well that seems pretty intimidating. I'm not really sure yeah. how to do that, right? I find that yin and yang incredibly interesting, but also really exciting. When you think about RecruitBot, what is your ideal customer profile? The tool is sort of incredibly powerful and flexible at this point. And so mm. we're very focused on white collar, hard to fill roles. So mm. if you need to hire a barista or a warehouse worker or a welder or something like that, we're probably not the right tool for you. But mm. if you're trying to hire in finance, in biotech, in education, if you need nurses, if you need ranging from product to design to engineering to, to marketing to anything and anything in between, we're pretty darn useful. We were very focused on sort of three major markets. One, we help sort of early stage companies, again, sort of with that sort of initial technical technology that I said, makes it really easy to go and do that. We yeah. focus a lot on sort of like mid-market companies as well, helping them scale out their recruiting organizations and making them more effective. And we also work and power some of the top recruiting agencies on the planet, ones that are making placements for the Facebooks and Ubers of the world. There's a lot of collaboration that happens across all of mm. those segments where we're constantly making changes to the product based on the feedback we're getting from our customers. There's thousands of problems we run into every day. What is it about a problem that makes Dr. Schiff go, I'm going to solve this? Yeah, I think I, I think the number one rule of being a founder is sort of like there's this strange lie that everyone seems to get from sort of observation bias, where everyone thinks that a startup, like you start a company and two years later, it's either like Instagram or it doesn't exist. And that's just sort mm -hmm. of the way startups go. And the reality is building anything interesting takes sort of a minimum of five years, typically 10, 15, 20. It could take a really long time to go and build sort of high impact businesses. So you need to pick a domain where you're like, I'm not going to get bored of this in two years or something like that. That's a very personal question and it evolves over time, right? So, mm. and it, for me, it's also a unique combination of not only is there something highly impactful you can do. But there's also a unique property about what's going on at a point in time that makes that solution feasible in a way that wasn't before. So a great example mm. is the very first company I started, like Photoflexer, this online photo editor. We powered MySpace and PhotoBucket and eHarmony. Mm. And we it was crazy. There were 12 of us and we were we had 50 million people using the app every month, getting back to sort of that scale problem that we were talking yeah. about. Before. That's that's insane, right? Even I, yeah. I still don't believe those numbers. But that was a unique point in time. Facebook had just launched its F8 platform that allowed you to build technology on top of it that could go and integrate with it and provide value in deep ways. MySpace was 
becoming huge and photo bucket was as well and sort of mm-hmm. the first wave of all of this image related stuff before instagram was coming out and it was the first time that was happening right no one no mm-hmm. one needed a photo editor beyond like photoshop a couple years earlier mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there was this big shift in consumer behavior that sort of revealed this big and interesting problem. Mm. And again, it was I'm driven by impact. And so like, there's this big opportunity, and there's an ability to go and build a product that tens of millions of people can use every month. The restaurant one was sort of a funny one. I was debating about if I should start my own venture on my own and sort of exploring a bunch of ideas. And a student of mine who was from the entrepreneurship class I had been the TA of in grad school randomly reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm starting a company. Do you want to like come and talk to me? And like Mm -hmm. his initial sort of view of the world was really interesting. It was, I think that AI and machine learning is going to recommend everything you're going to do in the real world in the same way that Amazon recommends all the products, right? Mm. And so I was like, that's that's a great vision, but we need to start somewhere. And so honestly, I consulted for about a month and a half and was like, we're going to mm. pick a domain and we're going to work on that first. Yeah. And then we'll worry about sort of generalizing out. And if you like the domain and I like the domain, I'll join. And if not, you got a bunch of free work out of me, like congratulations, yeah. go and do whatever mm. you want to do. And we picked restaurants and it just seemed like like a very straightforward place where it would go and add value. It's very clear that the restaurant you're going to want to go to for lunch at work and the restaurant you're going to go and take your girlfriend for her anniversary, both of which are sushi, uh, are yeah. going to be very dramatically rec- different <laughs> recommendations. At the end of the day, like it was a really fun and interesting and impactful problem. They were all foodies. I thought not only was the problem interesting, but the broader domain, if it was exciting, was great. The yeah. domain itself was big enough. So we ended up selling it to OpenTable and I ran machine learning and data science there for a while. Yeah. And then I got really frustrated with how hard it was to hire what recruiters call the purple squirrels, but basically yeah. like machine learning people, data engineering people, they're to this day, some of the hardest people to hire. And mm. so after I left RecruitBot, or sorry, after I left OpenTable and took a year, I just, at that point, I needed some time off. I just traveled for a while. I came back and I was still thinking about this, like, there's got to be an easier way to yeah. hire people at scale. And it, for me, it was interesting because it was an enterprise company as opposed to consumer, but uh, a lot of my consumer background would be relevant there. Another like large scale search and recommendation problem, which meant I had expertise that other people didn't. There's been an explosion of access to data in the last five years that allowed some of these problems and companies to exist that sort of weren't feasible before. And for me personally, I really want RecruitBot to be successful because it means the next three companies are easier to build because I can go and build my foundational teams using (laughs) RecruitBot regardless of what company I'm at next, right? So people always talk about building a problem that you can use to to solve your own problems. Having this experience of both the really small, tiny startup and like the larger tech company and leadership in one, what has playing in both places taught you about the strengths and limitations of kind of the hardcore tiny startup versus like the larger tech company? For me, the fun part about being a, working at a startup is two things. One, like especially as the CEO or as a leader, I have a lot of control over who I work with every day, which is pretty darn mm. exciting. But you can really be a lot more like you can move really quickly and you can try a lot of different things and you can recruit a pretty small, generally a pretty small group of people to go and work on a problem together. But you have a mm. lot of autonomy. And so you need to have a lot of faith in yourself that like you're going to yeah. work it out. You really most of the time can't see more than one or two steps ahead of you. And like the longer you do this, the more you get terrified about how much like 
It's always the combination of luck and opportunity, but there's a lot of luck there. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of put one foot in front of the other and you're like, either I believe in my own destiny and being able to control it or I don't. Um, But for me and anyone at RecruitBot, I think we all sort of share that sort of excitement about sort of the, the scariness and the empowerment of going and sort of controlling your own destiny. The trick is like the level of resources you have as a, as especially when you're starting out, we're, we're bigger now, but when, when all you've done is like when you're, when you're bootstrapping to get to your, to get to your MVP so that you can go and raise your first round of money, like that's never an easy process. You're, you're doing whatever you need to do to sort of get the thing out the door. And then again, as you get bigger, it gets easier in some ways, more difficult than others, but like you have resources, you can scale, you can delegate to other people. You don't need to be, I've been forced to learn a lot of, again, my background is in sort of machine learning and AI. So people get really confused when I'm talking about like, I don't know, CAC to LTV, or I'm talking Mm -hmm. about whatever sort of sales or business tactic of the day or product-led growth or whatever we're talking about here. You learn to be versatile, but again, you also learn to pull in advisors, especially early, who can go and help you. Some mm. feedback I got very early on at OpenTable was like, you're acting a lot like a founder. You need to sort of think of yourself more as like a senior manager and not like a founder where you can't go and put out all the fires. You have to focus sort of in your lane as a CEO mm. of a startup. You're like, there's a problem over here. We're going to fix it. I think I'm more at home in startups. How, if at all, did the experience at OpenTable change your views or approach to leadership? It's always hard to tell if it's just like general maturity and personal growth versus like the specific experiences. But like when I was younger, it was just about the technology and the product. Now it's a lot more about the people and the team. If you're in a small startup, you can actually, the right type of engineer can probably push out one or two pretty impactful features on their own. Mm. If you're an open table, that ain't happening. You're working with a lot of different people to get literally anything out the door. Sort of realizing how much the relationships and like, I always don't like the word politics, the way that you advocate for ideas, the way that you have conversations about difficult issues. These are all things that I got much better at at OpenTable, which I think has served me at RecruitBot. I think back before then, I was just sort of like, what do you mean? We hire good people and we build good products and people will buy them. And like that's a sort of overly simplistic view of the way the world works. What is it about who you are in this world that people don't often know? Like all of my friends know it, but if anyone who sort of saw it from the outside, startups are so much harder than anyone realizes. If you listen carefully at Elon Musk, he's complaining all the time about how hard it is to run companies, right? Like yeah. and whether it's a tiny company or Elon Musk, who's probably one of the best people in the world at doing it right now, starting companies and running companies and leading people is really, really hard. It's really easy to just sort of see the Machiavelli in like the end and and not about not in terms of that the end justifying the mean, but in terms of not really sort of seeing or understanding the journey that people go on. It just takes, it's it's funny, over and over, you're like, what be, what is the number one quality that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur? Stupid amounts of grit. You're willing to believe in yourself and persevere, despite the fact that everyone telling you what you're doing is dumb or makes no sense or, or what have you. Like You focus on the people who see your vision and support your vision and, and sort of understand all of those things. It's a mm-hmm. real sacrifice. There's lots of trade-offs in life that you make based on trying to... It's very hard to not be emotionally connected to your startup and think of it almost like a child. The ups are amazing and the downs are rough. Finding mm. ways to refuel and for people to pick you up and be vulnerable when you're not feeling well. Like, I don't know, like if I'm off and I'm having a meeting and I'm not doing like a good job, I'll be like, sorry, guys, I have a migraine. I didn't sleep well last night because I'm human, just like the rest of us. Like I'll help how I can and I'll take a nap this afternoon and I'll be good to go again. And like, that's mm. fine. This stuff's really hard. 
so much of it is about building a vision and getting other people involved. And I don't just mean like your investors, and I don't even mean just your employees. What you're ultimately doing is trying to bring everyone along in a vision that you have about the way that the world could be better and have them buy in a little bit about it. It's amazing how I can turn to customers and say, I have a feature. I have no idea if it's a good idea or not, but it's a weird idea. I'm going to put it in front of you and you'll tell me if it's wonderful or terrible or something in between. That balance is hard, right? You need to be opinionated enough that you don't just sort of zigzag and you know exactly like you have a vision that you're moving towards. Yeah. But you need to be empathetic enough to listen to other people's opinions to make sure that what you're building is really in line with what's going to be valuable to them and not just yourself. It's a constant tug of war, but it's a lot of fun. I love that. Constant tug of war, but it's a lot of fun. And now it's time for Spoken Stories, our recurring segment where we get to listen to the voices behind the venture, the employees, investors, and customers who make up what makes the venture so successful. This week, I got to chat with some of RecruitBot's employees and customers and find out from them what got them so excited about RecruitBot. Here's what they had to say. I'm Chuck Brotman. I am co-founder and VP of sales of Blueprint Expansion. If we didn't have RecruitBot in our arsenal in our early days as a recruiting firm, we, we may not have even taken on the number of recs we did at one time. RecruitBot gave us the confidence that we could scale our outreach for some of our largest and high demand clients. And part of that is actually crafting multi-touch messaging to share with the client. We often use the email preview feature where we can generate all the, the components of a, of a sequence and share that directly with our clients, whether in a weekly stand-up meeting or by email to them to get their feedback and they can make revisions into that. And what's nice about RecruitBot is your ability to have like multiple search tabs set up for a given role and then to see your you know, respective uh, you know, engagement rates and then conversion rates through on the client side to see you know, ultimately what, what candidates they're best responding to. So then I could go back to RecruitBot and, and double down on that search strategy. It helps us, you know, gain feedback in a scalable way. It just ultimately gave us the confidence that we could do a lot more in a more efficient and effective way than if we were using tools like LinkedIn to reach people on more of a one-to-one basis where it's just hard for you know, single recruiters to move fast enough to reach multiple candidates around a compelling company we're working with. We've always found that RecruitBot, including its executive leadership, has had like the right balance of like curiosity and openness to feedback, but also like strong expertise and prescriptiveness where we needed it to, to learn from you know their broad base of, of customers who've been successful before. Companies always aspire to have that sort of impact on their client businesses and with RecruitBot, we really achieved that. My name is Kareem Musa. I am the managing partner of DMC Search, which I founded. I purchased RecruitBot probably three and a half years ago while I was at Earn, and I tested it out for about a week, and then we just we just purchased a few licenses right away because we we saw that it was effective. This is a tool, effectively, uh, that would help my recruiters have a better relationship with their hiring managers, and they could work together effectively to engage with candidates at a higher level. And, you know, LinkedIn is a saturated tool and everybody is pinging people on LinkedIn. But when you can do that and then you can differentiate yourself by plugging it into an email and then having a marketing campaign to 
therefore to follow up, like the engagement is a lot higher. And the person who worked for me is the one who did all the reach out via RecruitBot, but with my name on it. They were able to send messages on my behalf. So that was like me being able to be two places at once. If you're a engineer and a recruiter reaches out to you, they get millions of, I mean, it's just a recruiter. But if it's the director of recruiting and it's a very specific message, the response rate is, is a great deal more. You know, my next step was rolling that marketing campaign. So when you're reaching out to people and they say, hey, we're not ready right now. One of the last messages is we're doing a speaker series or we're doing an event, or we're doing an open house. Would you be willing to you know, bring a friend and, and come at least see who we are? And so that that is another you know high level engagement. You'll have a lot of success. And so there you have it, folks. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much, as always, for the gift of your time and your attention. In our busy world, that is often the most valuable gift we have to give. I'm deeply grateful, and I look forward to chatting with you soon. Have a great week. 